Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast. Episode 106, We'll Inherit the Earth. Well, it's been just over a month since the last episode of the The Apologetics podcast, and I do apologize for that. I think I mentioned in a previous episode that things had gotten really hectic in my life and overwhelming, and uh, and that the episodes would be coming out fewer and farther between. Um, so I did warn you, <laughs> but uh, but in any case, I, I'm hoping that um, that things will improve in a couple of months, and I'll be able to once again pick up the pace. We'll, we'll have to see. I'm not exactly sure what I've got lined up during that period of time, uh, I, I, with the exception of this episode today, which I'll explain in a moment, and uh, an interview with Jim Wallace here in a couple of weeks uh, to discuss his recent book. Um, so uh, hopefully we'll have some material for you to listen to, kind of, you know, like I said, in episodes that are a little far apart uh, between now and a couple of months from now, but then hopefully I'll be able to pick up the pace again. In any case, today's episode is the final installment of a modular debate that I've been uh, hosting on my show between my friend Mike Felker of the Apologetic Front, who, by the way, not long ago started a podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, to go along with his blog. Um, uh, the debate between Mike, uh, Mike Felker and a Jehovah's Witness named Fred Torres. Uh, I would highly recommend, given how long it's been, it's been um, almost, it's been five or six months, uh, I would highly recommend that you go back and you listen to those, the first two parts of this, of this uh, modular debate. Uh, in episode 91, uh, Heaven Lasts Forever was its title. Uh, the debate topic was, All Christians in the New Covenant Will Live Forever in Heaven with Christ. And Fred Torres uh, presented his opening statement, and, and Mike Felker gave his, and then they had their, their first rebuttals to one another. And just to give you a little bit of a reminder uh, of the context, what's going on here is that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that, uh, that there are sort of two classes of Christians. There's, uh, there's those Christians that are the, uh, uh, they're, they're the ones that are in the new covenant. They're the ones that are actually born again and all these things. Um, they're, they'll, they're going to live in, uh, in heaven forever with Christ as disembodied spirits. Whereas the rest of Christians will, who are not part of the new covenant, who are, and who are not born again and so forth, are going to rise, uh, in physical bodies and live in those physical bodies forever. Uh, so Fred Torres was affirming that, uh, was affirming that statement, that all new covenant Christians will live forever in heaven with Christ, and Mike Felker denied it. And then in episode 93, which was titled New Earth, uh, we ha I moderated, moderated some, uh, cross-examination between the two of them, uh, where, uh, the participant would have one minute to ask a question, the person would have two minutes to respond and then uh, the questioner would have one minute to follow up and I think we asked uh, uh, five six or seven questions something like that back and forth uh, and then in this episode I had intended to have some uh, to submit to them some uh, uh, listener questions as well as some questions of my own but unfortunately schedules being what they are and I, I, you know I, I did I just didn't receive many uh, questions from from listeners uh, we've, we've had to leave that part out uh, but we but in this episode you will hear their second rebuttals to one another as well as their closing statements um, but like I said, it'll be a little difficult maybe to pick up on the debate from where you left off if you don't go back and listen to those again. So I would really encourage you to do that. Uh, before we go ahead and get into these second rebuttals and closing statements of this final installment of the debate, let's go ahead and play uh, the next promo in my promo rotation, which is for uh, my friend Dr. Glenn Peoples. Say hello to my little friend. Hi, this is Glenn Peoples from Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. 
Tune in to hear discussions of philosophy, theology, and even the odd bit of politics from a Christian point of view that doesn't necessarily fit in with the crowd. Search for Say Hello to My Little Friend at the iTunes Store or check us out online, beretta-online.com. I highly recommend Dr. Glenn Peoples and his podcast, uh, Say Hello to My Little Friend, which you can find at beretta-online.com. Uh, I think that when in areas in which you guys uh, in which you agree with him, you'll find his uh, his uh, defense of those positions very um, encouraging and compelling. And in areas in which you disagree, I think that you'll find him challenging in a very refreshing way. Uh, it'll cause you to think. Uh, it certainly did with me on a number of uh, well, on a couple of issues, as longtime listeners of this show will know. Um, but uh, but yeah, do do check that out. And also, if you're a podcaster and if you need uh, theme music. Um, uh, as I did when I began my podcast, uh, Glenn created my podcast theme music, and he has a company called Theme Music New Zealand, uh, and I've got a link in my show notes to that, uh, where you can he'll work with you to um, to ask what kind of music you're interested in and stuff like that, and he'll he'll really custom um, he'll he'll really tailor music to your specific needs and to your your what it is that you want for your podcast. So if if that's something that you're looking for, look in the show notes for this episode and you'll see a link there to Theme Music New Zealand and um and I think that you'll really appreciate the uh, the quality of the work. Uh so with that, let's go ahead and move into this final installment of the debate between my friend Mike Felker and Fred Torres uh on whether or not all Christians in the new covenant will live forever in heaven with Christ. Since this is my last opportunity to address my arguments, I'll need to go through these points quickly. And most of this will be from our cross-examination section and trying to tie up some loose ends that I either wasn't clear enough on or didn't have the time to address. First, Fred claims that I didn't provide a solution for my second contention, but that I just pointed out an inconsistency in the Jehovah's Witness position. However, if you listen carefully to my opening, you'll find that this was not a defense of my second contention, but my first contention. But that's okay because I know what Fred was referring to, and I'll explain my argument again briefly. To put it simply, the solution to the inconsistency, which is what Fred is asking of me, is to see the great crowd as being members of the New Covenant. But this solution is not just something I'm coming up with. It's the actual result of an argument which includes, but is not limited to, an inconsistency in my opponent's position. So in my opening, I raised the argument that the great crowd in Revelation 7 must be in the New Covenant. And this can be verified by comparing this chapter, Revelation 7, to the qualifications mentioned in Revelation 22. And if it turns out that by comparing the two groups, we determine that they are of the same group, then I have successfully denied the debate proposition. The reason being, my opponent believes that those in Revelation 22 are in the New Covenant. 
So this is more than just pointing out an inconsistency in my opponent's position. It's an actual argument to deny the deba debate proposition. Next, my opponent argues that Abraham's spiritual seed and the new birth are uniquely associated with the Christian church. But I think the former is problematic because Romans 4.13 is clear in applying new covenant promises to both Abraham and his spiritual seed. But since my opponent has brought up the new birth at this point, I'll address this briefly. John chapter 3 verse 3 explains that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. But we know that all Christians, not just those who Fred thinks are exclusive to the new covenant, will see the kingdom of God because Matthew chapter 25 verse 34 tells us explicitly just that, where Jesus says to the sheep on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there's no reason to think that someone will inherit the kingdom of God without actually seeing the same kingdom. Therefore, the new birth applies to all Christians. Next, Fred addressed my argument on Ephesians 2 by bringing out Ephesians 1.20, where Christ is said to be raised and seated in the heavenly places. Well, I completely agree that Ephesians 1.20 and the heavenly places mentioned have Christ in heaven. But I don't think uh, that such an interpretation adequately addresses Ephesians 2.6. And the reason is twofold. First, Ephesians 2.6 is speaking of a past tense reality and is being communicated to first century Christians who were obviously on earth at that time. Now, while I raised this point in my first rebuttal, I don't recall Fred providing an explanation of this. And second, in order to determine where these heavenly places are in Ephesians 2.6, we shouldn't look at Ephesians 1.20. Instead, we should be looking at the Bible's eschatology. The reason being, if it turns out that Christ will be returning to earth and will establish his kingdom there along with all true Christians then we would be incorrect to assert that the heavenly places mentioned in Ephesians 2.6 is eschatologically limited to heaven. Instead, it would include the earth, since this is where Christ will be when he returns. So I don't think Ephesians 2.6 can be used to prove my opponent's position and ends up begging the question. Next, my opponent argues that New Covenant Christians have a special relationship with Jesus Christ, which is expressed in Luke 22:29. And while I agree that New Covenant Christians have a special relationship with Christ, I don't agree that Luke 22:29 is limited to New Covenant Christians. But let's first read this verse along with verse 30 for context. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. If this passage is strictly limited to New Covenant Christians, then how does my opponent explain Matthew 8.11 and Luke 13.28? 
Both use very similar language as Luke 22, verse 29 through 30, and speak of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets as eating and drinking at the table in the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets will receive the new covenant and the kingdom covenant promises upon their resurrection. Fred then brings up the point that Abraham's spiritual seed inherit the world in the sense that they rule over it and own it. But then he argues that we shouldn't always assume that inheriting the land always means dwelling on it. Now the problem with this argument is that when we look at the Old Covenant land promises, we would never assert that the recipients of the land promise would not actually dwell in the land. In fact, I would challenge my opponent to find an exception to this. But if we can't find an exception to this in the Old Covenant, then why should we assume something different in the New Covenant land promises as specified in Romans 4.13? But a bigger problem I see is that Fred's position doesn't make sense of Romans 4.13. And given his view, he has to separate uh, the promise that is given to both Abraham and his spiritual seed. In other words, the land promise of inheriting the world means one thing for Abraham, but something else for his spiritual seed. But this is problematic because the text provides us with no differentiation on the promise. Both Abraham and his seed will inherit the world. Last, I'd like to finish my rebuttal by addressing uh, the second coming text again, which I don't believe was adequately addressed by my opponent. And while I sought to offer a response to his position uh, in my cross-examination section, I wanted to reiterate what I said just so I can be sure I'm clear on this. Acts chapter 1, 11 explicitly tells us that Jesus will come in just the same way as the apostles saw him go into heaven. But my opponent interprets this to mean that disappearing from view is the implication of that. However, this confuses the manner, which was physical and bodily, with the result, which was disappearing from view. Fred raises uh, Revelation 1-7 as an example because it speaks of the eye of discernment and not necessarily the physical eye. However, I'm not convinced that Revelation 1-7 is speaking of the second coming, so I'll leave that to my opponent to make his case. And then he brings up Luke 17-20, which says that the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. But is this talking about the second coming, or is it talking about something else? Well, again, I'll have to leave it to Fred to make his case on that. But regardless of what someone thinks about Revelation 1-7 and Luke 17-20, Acts 1 is clear in speaking of the visible and bodily ascension of Christ into heaven. And when we include uh, texts like Acts chapter 3, verse 21, and the other texts in uh, Matthew and Luke, which speak of eating and drinking at Christ's table in the kingdom of God, then I think we have a very strong cumulative case for the physical and bodily return of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom in its fullness. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I'll be addressing the points uh, that you uh, brought up in your rebuttal, your second rebuttal. Now, first I have to ask, uh, where in this debate am I arguing 
that Revelation 7, 9 and Revelation 22 uh, mention a group of uh, believers that are part of only one group or two groups. It hasn't been in this discussion. It's something that is not part of this discussion. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll address the points anyway, but again, I, it, it is not relevant to this discussion. And the argument itself is problematic because Mike focuses only on one of, of perhaps three possible solutions as he has framed the argument. Uh, again, so that's problematic. There are, there are more than one possible solutions, and he has, he has brought them up. Uh, option number one, all believers will, will, believe, will uh, inherit earth and live there forever. Solution uh, number two, all believers will live in, in heaven for eternity. And solution number three, which Mike has uh, mentioned he cannot rule out, is that all believers may end up living in a hybrid locality where heaven and earth become one, a position, in fact, advanced by some evangelicals. And that's another layer of problems for this argument is that two of these three arguments actually uh, defeat Mike's own position on this on this argument. One uh, possible solution, again, states that all believers could uh, live in heaven for forever. Again, that defeats his his argument. And the third solution would require where the where all believers will uh, inherit this this heaven and earth hybrid locality. Uh, again, that would require a complete reinterpretation and different understanding of all the scriptures he has mentioned. So, again, two of the three solutions actually argue against Mike's position. And if that's the type of evidence that, again, that he's putting forth, I certainly am not anybody to question that. And, I, 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 in fact, again, I welcome the opportunity for anybody to analyze that as evidence against the notion, as, as actual factual evidence of, of the notion that, that uh, all believers that are in the New Covenant, in fact, will inherit heaven for eternity, as I believe Jesus Christ uh, does as well. In regards to the heavenly places of Ephesians, in fact, I did address uh, this notion that uh, Mike brought up that this past tense reality in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Of course, I did address this in the opening statement uh, by stating that this is speaking of the resurrection as if it's already occurred. In fact, it's a past tense reality of a future event from the perspective of the time it was written. So in no way does this actually speak to the locality of the resurrection. And so it is appropriate for us to look at Ephesians chapter 1 to look at, well, what that heavenly place refers to. In fact, the scripture itself in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says that these will be in union with, with, with Jesus Christ. Well, according to Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus Christ is in heavenly places alongside the Father. And so uh, it's an interesting uh, discussion because Mike uh, argues that we shouldn't look at Ephesians chapter 1 for clarification. I believe it's the first place to look for clarification on the meaning of the heavenly places. So, again, I have, in fact, addressed that comment, uh, that, that point sufficiently and uh, adequately. So it does not threaten my, my proposition. And um, in regards to uh, the uh, uh, another argument brought out by, by Mike, the, uh, it's interesting, you see, Mike uh, has made it known that he believes that 
one can receive promises of a covenant that you are not a part of. And Abraham is not part of the new covenant, yet he gets the, the promises of the new covenant. And again, in itself, that's a logically invalid position because right, by, by, uh, by giving an interpretation that strips the, the written word of its meaning, again, you, it becomes a logically invalid uh, argument because then it's just a matter of fitting in uh, doctrine. And, and again, if a, a, uh, the New Covenant is a bilateral agreement between Christ and, I'm sorry, between, uh, between God and uh, the New Covenant believers, it's a bilateral agreement between those two parties. Abraham is in neither party. And so how he receives the benefits, or how he receives the promises of a covenant that he is not a part of, again, that interpretation in itself is logically valid and uh, it is not a good argument. Um, and on top of that, Mike continues to uh, fail to address the key aspect of my argument. Even though it is not my burden to prove where Abraham's going to live, this is a discussion about New Covenant Christians, again, I'll address it as well. Again, namely that the Abrahamic, Abrahamic Covenant itself speaks of the fact that Abraham would produce kings. Genesis uh, chapter 17, verse 16, specifically says, again, that, uh, that the, uh, Abraham, again, would produce kings of peoples. And so kings inherit land, and they inherit authority in a much different way than those that are not kings. And that is, again, what I brought out in regards to Luke 22, 29, the fulfillment of that kingdom covenant, where, again, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, uh, is granted a kingdom by God, and, and then Christ himself uh, grants a kingdom to his followers. And that's, of course, what Genesis 17 says, right? That, that uh, again, Ab that, uh, that kings of peoples would come out of Abraham. And... Uh, Again, this point has not been addressed by by um, by Mike. And so again, how do kings inherit land? Well, again, kings inherit, and the Davidic line of kings is, is a string of evidence uh, that, that demonstrates this. A king will inherit land property that he may never set foot on. And he has the authority to rule, rule over those people that, that live there. And so yes, uh, Jesus Christ himself inherits the land and inherits the kingdom, the authority to rule over, over the land, and uh, of course his uh, his followers as well, and that are in the new that are in the new covenant. If you look at Genesis seventeen sixteen, nowhere does it say that Abraham himself is will uh, is a king or will be a king. It simply says that kings will come out of her, and speaking of the the seed, of course that that. Uh, uh, of uh, Abraham and, and Sarah. It's very, very interesting. Again, and this is an argument that has not been touched in any way. Even though, again, it's not my burden to to, to prove this. Again, uh, so uh, there are multiple problems again with the arguments brought forth by Mike. Uh, Mike has also brought in uh, Romans chapter four, verse thirteen. Again, if you read Romans four thirteen again, New American Standard Bible, uh, it says, "For uh, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants." that he would be the heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. There's nothing there that I disagree with. Again, the, uh, the, the promise was to Abraham 
and to his descendants. But the promise that they're speaking of there is that Abraham would be heir uh, of the world, of course not through law, but through faith, and using him as an example of faith that we should have as, as Christians. And so again, there's nothing there that certainly uh, would argue against my position at all. In fact, I, again, I fully agree that the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, as spoken here, that Abraham would be the uh, would be uh, heir of the world through law, through faith, and not law. Of course, I completely agree with that. There's nothing in that scripture that defeats uh, or that argues against my position. Um, and, and it's very interesting uh, again uh, argument that he has put forth on that. In regards to the uh, the uh, uh, to Acts chapter uh, one verse eleven again. Uh, it's a very interesting argument that Mike's putting forth here. Mike says that the, ma the manner must mean bodily, that he that he's in a physical body. Of course, I've already addressed this multiple in my opening statement. I've spoken of the fact that Jesus Christ is a spirit, and that he's a, a, a life-giving spirit, and of course that uh, so are and his followers upon the resurrection. So again, the the manner uh, in which he he uh, leaves the earth simply could mean the fact that he's lifted up right that's the manner in which uh, he uh, he leaves it could mean the, the fact that it was left that he left without fanfare of the world you know leaving could uh, uh, the uh, the manner in which he left again as Mike argues must mean exclusively that he's in uh, in, in bodily form and again I've already addressed this anyway that that the temporary physical manifestations and in fact, that argument has gone without refutation, has gone untouched. Um, and uh, so that's, um, again, a point uh, to, to keep in mind. And uh, the fact that, that uh, Jesus Christ is said to return with the clouds, that he's not visible, uh, again, so it, and that he's not visible to humans, all that uh, certainly uh, harmonizes with the notion that Jesus Christ is resurrected as, as a spirit. And the scripture itself, again, Acts chapter 15, uh, Specifically uh, states that uh, that Christ is a uh, a, li a life giving spirit. Mike also did not address uh, the the notion that uh, the uh, that his followers asked for a sign uh, of his presence or parousia. And uh, in regards to Galatians chapter uh, three verse twenty nine, uh, again when uh, it's speaking of those that belong to Christ, our Abraham seed. If we read Acts twenty twenty nine, it's speaking specifically of the of the Christian church, where again uh, we read that uh, again Acts twenty twenty eight, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. Obviously, that's only speaking of the Christian church that He that He has bought with His purchased with His own blood. And so that's the uh, the meaning of Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, as brought out by, by Mike. Thank you very much. In my closing statement, I'd like to tie up a few loose ends that I didn't get to address, uh, in addition to providing some parting words. And I'll have to go through these uh, points really quickly, once again, due to the little time that I have. First, I need to make it clear that I made the arguments I did in my opening statement because I had no idea where uh, Fred would be going in his presentation. And unfortunately, I assumed uh, that Fred would have gone to Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 14 to support his case. 
And that's why I brought up my argument in comparing the great crowd of Revelation 7 to the group mentioned in Revelation 22. But even though Fred didn't make this argument, I'll stand by my position in the context of this debate. And the reason is, Fred believes that Revelation 22 is talking about New Covenant Christians exclusively. And if he doesn't believe that, then I'm happy to stand corrected. But what I think Fred is missing is the bigger picture. That is, if I could prove that an earth-dwelling Christian is in the New Covenant, then Fred's argument fails. And that's what I'm trying to do with my comparative agreement uh, between Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 22. Now, let me be clear about the three options that Fred brought up. Obviously, I don't hold to the view that all Christians will spend eternity in heaven as a metaphysically distinct location from earth. So this view is really irrelevant to me. But as far as the heaven and earth hybrid is concerned, keep in mind that this is not my actual position. And whether I am quote-unquote open to this as an option is really irrelevant. But what is relevant is my current position, which is that all Christians will spend eternity on the new earth as a metaphysically distinct location from heaven. So this is the only position that I am defending in this debate. And with Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we've gone back and forth on this one um, without either one of us really saying anything new. So I'm comfortable with just leaving this one for the listener to decide for himself. Now Fred mentions that it's logically invalid or impossible uh, for Abraham to receive promises for a covenant that he was not originally a part of. But scripturally, this is not the case. There are many examples I could use, but I like the one in Hebrews. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it speaks of the city of the living God in heavenly Jerusalem. Now, is this a promise that is explicitly reserved for those in the new covenant? Well, I'm sure that Fred would agree that it is. But what about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16? In this text, Abraham and others are said to have a heavenly city prepared for them. But of course, Abraham never received this promise as chapter 11 verse 39 in Hebrews tells us. But he will receive it upon his resurrection, as would most other Old Covenant saints. But be that as it may, Fred brings up the bilateral nature of the New Covenant, but I think he's just begging the question if I understand his argument correctly. Certainly, the covenant is made between God and Christians, but I see absolutely nothing illogical about old covenant saints being resurrected to receive these promises. After all, these same old covenant Christians can only be resurrected by the blood of Christ, which is a new covenant function. Fred brings up Genesis chapter 17 verse 16 as evidence that Abraham and others can't be in the new covenant. But this argument assumes that not all Christians or old covenant saints can be kings upon the resurrection. 
And I'm not arguing from silence here, because I've provided evidence that there are Christians who will live forever on the new earth, yet fulfill the qualifications for being in the new covenant. Hence, once again, my reason for bringing up Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 22, as well as other texts. Romans uh, chapter 4 verse 13 was brought up by Fred, but I still think my argument stands firmly. Yes, Abraham is used as an example of being heir of the world or inheriting the world, but this is also to include his descendants. And perhaps I'm not understanding Fred's argument here, but it seems like he's saying that Romans 4.13 is actually excluding Abraham's descendants. Now, if that is what he's saying, this would be extremely problematic and difficult to explain in light of the original Abrahamic covenant, because it's really just a reiteration of the original Abrahamic covenant, but he's applying it to Christians. Fred brings up Acts chapter 1, verse 11, but I don't think he understands my argument, so I'll state it again if perhaps I wasn't clear. The manner in which Christ was raised was physical and bodily. But if Christ was raised invisibly, then how could the disciples have seen him disappear into the clouds? Well, they couldn't have because they never would have seen him. Therefore, if Christ was raised in such a way that the disciples could see him go, which necessarily implies a visible and bodily ascension, then he will likewise descend in a visible and bodily manner. Now, 1 Corinthians 15.45, which speaks of Christ as a life-giving spirit, has been brought up throughout this debate, but I honestly don't think my position stands or falls on whether Christ is presently an invisible spirit in heaven. Nor do I think my position stands or falls on whether the physical manifestations of Christ were simply temporal and physical. So, I just haven't pursued either one of these because I just don't think they refute my position. And last, as far as the arguments are concerned, uh, Fred raises Galatians 3.29, but I'm failing to understand his point uh, where he compares it to Acts 20.29. Yes, those who belong to Christ are the Christian church, but how do you define the Christian church? That's the question. So it seems as though Fred is just assuming that the Christian church can actually exclude Christians or something. And while I agree that the Christian church is exclusively New Covenant Christians, at the same time, I believe that all Christians are New Covenant Christians. So, I think Fred brings up an irrelevant point. And I think my argument still stands uh, that Galatians 3.29 would necessarily apply to Christians who will dwell on the new earth because they belong to Christ by definition. So, Galatians 3.29 would have to apply to them. And in closing, I'd like to personally thank Fred uh, for agreeing to do this debate. And I must admit that Fred is one of the most honest and friendly Jehovah's Witnesses that I've yet to encounter. Uh, he is truly a unique fellow, and I just wish that more Jehovah's Witnesses uh, were like him in that regard. So with that said, I really hope that this debate will encourage more Jehovah's Witnesses to consider doing these types of exchanges and just entering into the public arena and to begin to engage others. 
Now, as far as um, our topic of debate, I believe that I have successfully refuted the debate proposition that all New Covenant Christians will live forever in heaven with Christ. But I think this issue goes far beyond the idea of location. That is, it's not just about whether someone goes to heaven or earth. It's much more than that. The problem comes with the implication of Fred's position, or the Watchtower's position, whereby only a select group of Christians will go to heaven. And these implications cannot be underemphasized. For example, Fred's position holds that the vast majority of Christians are not born again and will never experience the new birth. Also, most Christians do not have Christ as their exclusive mediator with Fred's position. In addition, uh, his position elevates some Christians to a level of authority that arguably might even rival the claimed authority of the Catholic magisterium. And I'm talking about uh, the governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses here. So I think it's of critical importance to really study this issue out and follow the truth wherever it may lead. And it's my hope that the listener will really take the time to examine the arguments in this debate, take notes, study the scriptures, and ask God for a spirit to guide you and lead you to the truth. So thanks for everyone who has taken the time to listen to this debate, and my deepest thanks for Chris Date being willing to moderate it. Thank you for listening. And if you are still listening, you might be asking yourself what this debate was really all about and who was affirming what and who was denying what. Now here's what I mean. Mike said that he's defending the position that all New Covenant Christians will live on the earth for eternity and that I have to deny that. And that if I don't deny that, then he will have proven the debate prop he will have denied the debate proposition. So now, if I take my allotted time to refute his argument, have I proven my arguments? Have I advanced my proposition and my arguments? If we're honest, of course, we know the answer. Of course not. So I'm left with a lot of questions about this debate. I'll go over a couple here as brief, briefly as I can. Regarding uh, the argument that Jesus was resurrected as a spirit, and that's key, resurrected, in 1 Corinthians 15.45, and the temporal physical manifestations argument. Mike said that he did not really pursue these arguments because according to him, these arguments, or I'm sorry, his arguments don't stand or fall on my arguments. Now, perhaps he feels that way, and of course, is that his position, should that be his position as the one denying the debate proposition, but more than that, even if he feels that way, wouldn't it have been better if he let you decide that? By And he would have done so by engaging my arguments? On several occasions, I pointed out that his arguments were relevant, but I addressed them anyway, because I want to let you decide if that's the case or not. That's just something to ponder. Now, sidebar question about this. If my arguments aren't even worth refuting, I have to ask why his defense of Acts 111 is so important to his position. And that's just something else to ponder. 
Now there are other multiple occasions, multiple times, where he brought out similar points that he was, you know, that he was defending his position, and that I had to deny them. And there were multiple times that he did that. Now, let me also ask: we go back to uh, the opening statements. Would it have been beneficial for Mike to have addressed in detail Philippians chapter two, verse nine, John seventeen five, and addressed them, given a nice. Uh, counter exposition to these points instead of the dismissive comments in his rebuttal wouldn't this debate have been that much better I know I certainly believe that perhaps you do as well now I'll touch out briefly on on, on the uh, Mike's argument that Abraham is a born again Christian in the resurrection which seems to summarize Mike's entire argument here wouldn't you have benefited from a scriptural exposition on how dead people can actively enter into bilateral contracts? Wouldn't that have been a fascinating explanation to hear coming from someone of Mike's caliber? I know I would have benefited from that explanation. I've heard several persons attempt such explanation. It would have been good to hear that explanation coming from Mike. Fortunately, we didn't hear that. Now, Mike says he doesn't see the logical problem in this argument. I'll, I'll give I'll give him the label. I'll give you the label. It's moving the goalpost because his argument requires that he redefine and or ignore the concept of bilateral uh, agreements, the, the notion of bilateral contracts, which is what the new covenant, uh, what the new covenant is. So there's also, on top of that, there's also a circular, a circular component to his argument that unfortunately I don't have time to get into. And maybe that's due to Mike's presuppositionalist uh, views, but anyways, that's, that's another, another uh, fallacy that's mentioned there that he brings out. Now, regarding the, the kingship of Genesis chapter 17, again, wouldn't it have been beneficial for you and for me uh, if Mike had addressed my actual argument that all of Abraham's spiritual seed will be kings in the manner and with the authority of those in the Davidic dynasty, would it have been good if he had addressed the point and engaged it? Certainly this debate would have been more, more substantive. Um, and wouldn't it have been good to hear Mike's explanation of who are those people that these kings were going to be ruling over? Right, Genesis 17, 16, I think verse 6 as well, says that they're going to be kings over peoples. Well, who are those peoples that all of Abraham's spiritual seed are going to rule over? Just something to ponder, because we didn't hear the explanation. Now, were you as surprised as I was to hear Mike stands by his refutation of an argument that I never made? If you need the... Uh, the label for that fallacy, I believe it's straw man, the straw man fallacy, Revelation 22, Revelation 7, never made that argument. He stands by his refutation of that argument. So as a debater, what am I supposed to do with that argument? What would you do? And I have to ask another question, perhaps of a more serious nature, a broader nature. Is that the kind of argumentation that invites and encourages more debate? Just another question to ponder.
Now, on a personal note, I want to thank Mike because Mike is a gentleman and a scholar, and I continue to have the utmost respect for him. And um, if I ever meet Mike in person, drinks are on me. And um, I certainly uh, feel, feel privileged to have had this interaction with him and to have you as a listening audience as well. And of course, thank, thank you, Chris Date, for uh, the fine job in moderating the debate. And uh, we thank you uh, as well. And I agree with Mike that, um, you know, that there are broader issues in this debate, certainly many worth considering. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Mike is a great debater, and unfortunately in this debate, he failed. And I failed, so I apologize, because if you came here looking for a um, debate about whether Christians will live in heaven, you may have been disappointed. Maybe you weren't, but I feel that way. At any rate, I do thank you for listening. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Chris. And again, uh, there are nuggets of truth in this debate. You're just going to have to look for them. And I do pray that we all find these nuggets of truth. Amen and amen. Thank you. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the debate. Uh, my sincere apologies to Fred and to Mike for uh, for it taking so long. I hope that you'll join me for the next episode of the podcast for an interview with Jim Wallace on his new book. Until then. Until then.